0: Welcome, everyone, to this latest episode of PodCastle in the Sky. On this discussion, we're stepping back 40 years to the height of the Cold War, when the world was on the precipice of nuclear annihilation. And we're looking at that through the lens of two movies. The first is a 1982 anime directed by Tomohara Okazumata and Toshio Masuda, Future War 1980X, and the Clint Eastwood vehicle Firefox, releasing the same year and adapted from a British novel, techno-thriller novel. And when I first, you know, recommended these two features uh, in cooperation with Will, you know, I was mostly thinking of them in the sense of, you know, very typical kind of examples of the peak Cold War techno-thriller as a genre in general, but they also actually ended up being uh, really interesting comparative historical documents and time capsules of a particular moment, right? Because they were both released uh, in 1982, right? Reagan has recently been uh, elected to the presidency, so the Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979. There are all sorts of new developments happening in both nuclear missile development, and nuclear missile defense, which comes up in the movies quite a bit. And basically after years of detente, the Cold War is heating up again, and you have these two movies which are basically wildly divergent interpretations of where this could lead, and sort of it's the, the moral direction of it too, right? So you have, on one hand, Future War 1980X, which is, you know, it's, a, it's adapted loosely from a British novel, which is also sort of an interesting wrinkle. They're both adapted from uh, British texts, but it's been modified heavily by the Japanese production staff, and it reflects this sort of ambivalence and trepidation uh, as a country that is not you know one of the leading powers that is just being swept up in this kind of intensifying cloud configuration that could end in the total annihilation of mankind and then you have firefox on the other hand which is kind of a classier first blood sort of like americans got his mojo back Uh, and it was funny to compare them in that context and also funny to compare them in the sense more firefox than future war that you know, we view the, the collapse of the Soviet Union as inevitable in our current time, not just in the sense that all things that have already happened are seem inevitable, but sort of the inevitability of the superiority of our system and the righteousness of our system. And that's not clear at all. Like the fear, fear that the Soviet Union is winning is so alive in, in Firefox. And it's just really, and it's not so much in a future war, but it sounds like in the novel. That it's based on it actually is a much stronger component and so that is it's really interesting you know people do not have those assumptions that we have now and those movies are really interesting kind of case studies for
1: that uh, before we get into that just a quick thing that Amber will not be uh, joining us this time around she could not be here she'll be back next time and just to introduce ourselves for any new listeners or people
2: who forgot who we are since the last time we were around. I am Jesse. And And I'm William. Anyway, I was just going to say that Tom's point about the inevitability of the Soviet Union made me think of an even later Cold War work, the uh, Tom Clancy 1986 novel, Red Storm Rising, which, like these, imagines a war between the Soviet Union. Uh, Well, I mean, like, future war, imagine the war between the Soviet Union and the United States. And the Soviet Union loses the war in that novel, but it doesn't actually result in the destruction of the Soviet Union. It at most results in the Soviet Union changing the leadership in an internal coup. And the idea that this kind of political status quo, even with the Eastern Bloc intact, would subsist, would survive if the war didn't go nuclear, was so an enduring a concept, even by the time Gorbachev was in charge. During a concert in in America, that is.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm actually glad you mentioned that novel because um, I uh, specifically read it after watching Future War 1980X. and it is a kind of fascinating, like reading science fiction of that time set in the far future, and the Soviet Union is still there, and the Cold War is still there, but it's in space. It's like the people of that time could not conceive. Of this conflict not existing even centuries from
0: now. And what's yeah. actually interesting is, I in the novel on which Future War 1988X is based, my understanding is that one of there's there's multiple it starts out multiple scenarios and there's been there's multiple revisions of the book, but in one of the revisions of the book, the Soviet Union actually does collapse. In which what's interesting to me too is, you know, that there was a certain again we. We take for granted now that the Soviet Union of the 1980s was decrepit and dysfunctional, but what's interesting is you do get very different interpretations of the its internal status, like its internal strength, from both of these movies. Because in Future War 1980 X, one of the impetuses for the war in that movie, the Soviet leadership sees that the the system is starting to collapse; it's not able to provide for its people, and they kind of have a like a Huxendorf logic, where we need to rejuvenate our state through a big cataclysmic war. And so they actually did identify a lot of the issues sort of starting to pull the Soviet Union apart in Future War 1980X, and that's not present at all in Firefox. But then, interestingly, in in the film, Soviet Union is depicted as surviving, whereas in the book, I guess one of the outcomes is that it does collapse. So, and again, it seems... Seems obvious now, but it's also you sort of have to remember. I think there's a historical tendency to like project, you know, the west of two thousand or nineteen ninety five sort of perennially backwards against, you know, the Soviet Union. But you have to compare them in their historical context, right? Like, even at knowing that the Soviet Union was dysfunctional, if you walked around Moscow in nineteen seventy nine or nineteen eighty, and you walked around like Times Square in nineteen seventy nine. I can understand why you'd be like, "Oh, the other system's are winning." They're absolutely winning, right? Like thing, or you know, England and the, and the like. Austerity age—the sort of abundance that we take for granted in the West—is like actually not entirely a feature of those countries in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties.
2: The way we think about it now. And of course, there's a very uh, defining moment in understanding the Cold War, which, especially for the Americans, much more than the Japanese, which would be Vietnam. It was for the American mind the major front of the Cold War for close to a decade, and they submitted had a huge amount of troops and supplies put in there, and they lost. You know, it was so you have this generation defining war against the tide of communism and communism swept right through. Now at this point obviously the Soviet Union is at war in Afghanistan and the United States is trying to make Afghanistan into their Vietnam. But it's only a few years into the war that, that, that's actually going to pan out and be a disaster for the Soviet Union is not
0: unquestionably obvious at this point. Right. And that's what's interesting is, I mean, I imagine it, you know, maybe it's part of what attracted Eastwood to the material. Like I said, it is a British novel uh, by a guy who's, he wrote in all sorts of genres in paperbacks. So I think for him, it might be just more a genre convention, but very texturally in this movie, it is like, getting over the trauma and humiliation of Vietnam to do something straightforward and principled and right and winning triumphantly. and So that that subtext in a lot of other movies in this era is baked in like very textually right into the start of this film.
1: Yeah, uh, the thing to remember about both of these movies is that they're both, at uh, one level, basically Cold War propaganda. Future war, the internal chaos that happens, that happens entirely with the Soviets, but otherwise, everything works the way it's supposed to work. Well the things that are supposed to work like the military stuff always works completely. When it breaks down this with human stuff. Like in Future of War, the uh the, the guy who lost his fiance and shot off like a, a nuclear missile tactical nuke or something. But you know they're their machines never break down there's never like a the contractor cutting um corners and then they're like oh crap or like their missiles are dud or anything like that which happens in real life but everything works the way it's, it's supposed to work as far as the war machines are concerned and it's it's kind of fascinating how obsessed with machines both of these movies are with like um this Machine perfection—that that basically reducing war into these these numbers. So you, you see that as well in the um, beginning of a Firefox when they're in that secret spy meeting and they're like going over the specs of the Firefox. And they're like, "Oh my God, there—it's got this many thousand pounds of thrust and this many blah 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 blah." And it's just like a whole list of numbers, basically just the. Like, going on about how superior this plane was and uh, they're they're going on about like oh my god this could change the nature of oh, this could change the world but it's like uh it's it's a really nice plane what the hell yeah.
2: <laughs> like these films are like as far as possible as you could get from something like to use an example of another 1980s war movie come and see a film about the visceral experience of war, about the horrific impact of war that people have on people. It's kind of a, a techno fetishism. It's not about the civilians, and it's not even about the soldiers. It's about the hardware. The hardware is cool. It has lots of little Pacific things. It can do all kinds of things, and it can be transcendent if applied correctly. And this is a belief that's really big, I think, particularly in the 1980s, at least within a certain within the techno thriller genre, within the general population, and the popularity of these kinds of works. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it's interesting because
0: I, I mean, uh, the the scene at the start is just perfect. Like, if you n- need to understand what a techno thriller is, the scene where they really just gratuitously go over all the specifications of this aircraft, and as uh, Jesse said, like, you know, no capability by itself. Placed outside of a relevant strategic context really means anything, but sort of this, the, the infinite confidence in technology in the future is on display here in the sort of like the bedrock of the, the techno thriller genre, and that scene encapsulated it perfectly, and I think we're being a little unfair to future war. I mean, pretty much the whole second half of that movie is just civilians and soldiers undergoing nuclear holocaust and dying miserably, fair and, point, fair point. and then at the end, you know at the end at the end it's it's a little over optimistic, maybe, but you know all the soldiers throw down their arms and, and join sides, nations stop you know borders are meaningless and and uh people reject the the militarism that is built up to this verge to that point but uh and Firefox it's absolutely on display, but the techno thriller aspect does come through right because what ultimately ends up saving the world is basically star wars uh not the movie. But the, um, missile defense initiative, which of course, again, retrospectively, now we know that was a big boondoggle, it didn't function as it, but here, it is like, you know, the, the one thing that, uh, and, and actually, you know, again, future wars, uh, they, they do always try and balance things in future wars. So they, they recognize that it has a, because it changes the defense theory behind mutual destruction, they, they identify that that Star Wars can potentially destabilize the balance of power, and they do identify that star, but still, like, the technology itself, freed from politics or interference, is sort of this magical thing that ends up saving, at least what's left of the world, from further nuclear annihilation, right? And it's actually the hero of the last last act. So yeah, that limitless belief in the future of technology is is very
2: much on display here. I suppose... To a certain extent, uh, what you mentioned about the, the second half of the future war with the civilians and the nuclear holocaust, this reflects anxieties less in the techno thriller genre and more in stuff like Threads of The Day After. You know, early popular 1980s depictions of what a nuclear holocaust would look like. So the film kind of threads the the, uh, the midpoint between these two kind of classically quintessentially 1980s obsessions.
0: Right, and I mean, I think Future War Two is, is, like I said, it's the the book, uh, which is not called Future War Nineteen Eighty X. It's by um, it's called the Third World War. What's it called? The Third World War: The Unfold Story, which was written by fronted by a particular former British military officer and sort of written together as this sort of consortium of of British military officers, right? And it it's sort of logic is fairly. It's much more. Uh, what we're talking about in terms of it's making a very uh distinct argument for a particular military posture uh particularly like a strengthening of the deterrent military posture and the work in which from which it's adapted future war is really not like that you, you don't come away feeling as though oh this could have been avoided by a particular set of technologies particular military posture or, you know, raising the defense pleasure or any of that stuff. It's a lot more human reality is on display in D4, 1980X, and it sort of has a, and it tries to sort of be even keeled in terms of, you know, people on different sides are or, or pushing for different outcomes. Like Jess said, there's a the, um, higher degree of chaos on the Soviet side, which is arguably somewhat accurate by that point, but. Yeah, it's, it's much, it's, it's a fusion of very weird impulses, which makes it sort of interesting because it is adapted from this work that is very much like basically a military document and it shares all of those military fetishist elements. But then on the other hand, it fundamentally, uh, sort of sympathizes with the lore character and views this entire thing as effectively futile, right? No one, no one comes out of this having attained victory. Whereas in the book on which it's based, the West comes out like, pretty definitively having one unless you know, there's one side scenario where they cut all their defence budgets because uh the peace next don't want defense spending and so we even wins, right? So very different outcome and interpretation of events from uh relative to the book on which it's based. Yeah,
1: for a future war nineteen eighty X, like you were saying, Tom, the both of these things were such snapshots of um that the time they were coming from, and yeah, like you mentioned, no one thought that the Soviet Union would go away. Partly because the Soviet Union was really good at like hiding the weaknesses you know, in their country and in, in their system. But uh, just like uh, going back to the techno fetishism thing, I used to wonder why '80s Hollywood was so obsessed with like AI, and considering that the technology of the time was laughably nowhere close. To um, uh, approaching those fears, like you know, Terminator, uh, Small Wonder, Short Circuit, Night Rider, but just like watching these movies and having to think about them, I kind of get it now. It's there was such an obsession with like machinery and uh, with technology, and it was just bleeding over into the uh, the popular media of the time. But it makes sense to me now because, yeah, if you look just look at the technology of the media at the time, no way they're building uh, the uh, Knight Rider or the
0: android from, or the robots from Short Circuit or anything like that.
2: Yeah, those are kind of exaggerations, but they do come from uh, also what was developing technologically in the late 1970s and late 1980s, because, for example, this is when video games and arcades and this Pac-Man start becoming popular and a little ubiquitous. So you're much more likely as a person to experience firsthand an example of a computer intelligence that can defeat you, even if it's just, you know, a game of Space Invader. And so you can extrapolate from a game of Space Invader to, you know, what if computers actually controlled uh, what a war looked like. So it comes with these anxieties, projecting into the future, that kind of thing.
0: Right, and I mean, interestingly, the Firefox actually is sort of a classic, like American individualist pushback on that, right? Because our main character, right, you know, he's a traumatized Vietnam veteran pilot, and you know, all the technology in the world of the Firefox it still comes down to the one man by himself, cool man, Mr. Clint Eastwood, and his skill. His skill as a pilot and as a man. All the technology in the world is just sort of a, a scaffolding on his personal skill, and so it is sort of um, the, there's there's an anxiety, as everyone said, about becoming obsolescent in the face of technology, but Clint Eastwood is here to say, nope, I'm, you still need that, that human touch to make the to, uh, the, the lust for freedom, to, uh, bring the, bring the technology to its full potential, which drives the Soviet command in the film of uh, the wall, of course. Who is this man? Why is
2: he so brilliant? Such a, such an enduring myth too, because that's also the, uh, theme of one of the biggest films in America this year, Top Gun Maverick. Explicitly stated by Tom Cruise, it's not the plane, it's the pilot.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's a very common theme just across American fiction, as you said. Like, I mean, The Jaws, to certain extent, is almost about that. Not if, it's everywhere. I mean, it kind of goes back to, I don't get too cliche, but it's, it's like the cowboy, the cowboy myth. One man and his gun against the world. And hey, makes for some good stories.
1: Well, uh, speaking of American anxieties, there is a detail from Firefox which does uh, really illustrate this. The plane, the control system, is thought control. It's a Soviet plane, and it flies by thought control. I mean, uh, there's no real narrative reason for it. It could have just been a really advanced stealth plane. And, uh, you know, when Clint Eastwood is actually using thought control, he's just saying words in Russian, so it doesn't really figure into the, um, there's no plot reason
0: for it to be a thought control plane, but there is a thematic reason that it is. Yeah, I mean, there's some very, very loose connections to real technologies that were emerging, are emerging, where... Terms of like heads up displays and things like that, but not not like it is in the movie where the the plane is kind of like it's a mixture of real technology and and like almost like it's like a night rider car like it's got some stuff that's really silly like like, like the ending where he wins the wins the dogfight by basically like the equivalent of shooting oil behind the car or something. It's a, a little goofy, but
2: what
1: surprised me about Firefox though is because. Um, the overwhelming emotion, emotions running through the movie was fear and tension. Like half the movie was um, about hiding from the Soviets, about Clint Eastwood infiltrating the USSR and just being hidden by this underground network of dissident uh, Jewish people, just to get to the um, secret base so we can steal the the plane. So I I was surprised about that. I didn't realize this was um so much an espionage
0: thing. Yeah, I wasn't uh, it's well over half the movie, actually. It takes a long time before you actually get to the plane and it really builds up the espionage elements. Like I think it could probably be a little shorter actually. trim some of that out. But a lot of it is well executed. I mean it's kind of like classic espionage stuff, it's not reinvented the wheel, but it's like capably and atmospherically directed. And it's always sort of fun looking at their symbol of the Soviet Union and, you know, what they get pretty right and what's way off. And, uh, I'm not even going to touch the accents. But.
2: Yeah, um,
1: so Firefox, actually, I found the narrative logic kind of, uh, like, dreamlike. Like, it's not, it's, it was almost irrational. Just I feel like if they just push it just a little bit more, they can get, like, a pretty decent, surreal a Cold War movie. The end, I it was kind of, like, to be completely honest, the thing that it most reminded me of in the whole story was, like, a, a saint's story, like, a hagiography. I mean, like, okay, if you just look at it, the protagonist is, like, beset by evil visions, and then he has to travel through a hostile country, and then he faces his fears, and then he finds salvation in the heavens. I was like, what? This is, um, this is almost like a religious salvation. When it shows him, like, after he blows up the other Soviet guy who's trying to, um, stop him. And then he's flying through the sky and the clouds and the sun is shining and he's like so, so happy. It's like, I'm saved. It's like, wow, this is almost religious iconography
0: over here. It's more Native America again. Oh yes, it's a joke, but it's kind of true, like, it is this fusion of, you know, as we talked about earlier, like, exercising the dunes of Vietnam, who's found his his purpose again.
1: Yeah, but just going to future war nineteen eighty X, so it's about the machines, really. Like, the characters, they're so, uh, they're barely there. I can barely remember the names of half the characters. The only one that actually came remember is the woman, Laura. And, well, like Amber was uh, going to say, she had been able to make it. Like, she was the only one who actually uh, correctly um, saw what was going on, how useless the entire conflict was. And and by the end, she was proven right. The whole thing gained them nothing, except after running through the whole thing, the, a lot of people died. But yeah. They basically started uh ended up where they started off with.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's always a you know an issue a right? movie the the scope is so grand, right? You're dealing with global war at every level of society, right? You from the president to the you know, secretary of the Soviet Union all the way down to the normal soldiers, so all depicted. And so there's just not really like the time. I mean, you know, it's a full two hour movie, uh the, the time or the space. Sort of like flesh these people out as actual human beings so much, and so they sort of, you know, fill fill their roles within the narrative, and it, you know, kind of feels. And I, the, the book is actually told as like a pseudo history narrative. I don't think it's actually, uh, like, it's not a conventional novel. I think it's written almost as though it's, it, this has happened in the past. So it sort of has that, you know, it's, it's like a docudrama almost. You know, there's a little bit of relationship stuff between Laura and guy whose name starts with an M, <laughs> I don't remember. But yeah, that's really the only, like, and I guess the the British soldier and the German fiancée who dies. Uh, but yeah, for the other part of it, they're all, you know, it's almost like these are real people for playing out their roles in this historical episode.
2: That reminds me, I did want to find an opportunity for this. Well, Amber cannot join us. She did leave a comment, which I uh, am now going to read out. Uh, and I quote, I mean, my biggest insert was that Laura was the only fucking person in Future War who knew what was coming from the beginning, along with being a scientist-slash-pilot-slash-astronaut-slash-disco queen. End quote.
0: I do like that they uh, had an argument about American hegemony while doing
2: disco. That's pretty fun. (laughs) That's what I like to do. (laughs) I mean, you want to you want to go period all the way. You don't want to have like just uh, half measures. You can have tanks, but you also have to have disco. You know, this is in World War Two. Yeah. You know? Yeah. the The classic war movie is about a small group
0: caught up in the larger war and just showing like the uh, this specific corner of this war. You know, like Saving Private Ryan or whatever. And it
1: is kind of interesting that Future War was showing. Was also showing the politicians and the strategic maneuvering, which was causing the
0: conflict in the first place. But yeah, the, you're right; it, it's too big to actually contain uh, everything as far as characters go. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think it. You know, I mean, so, some of the individual incidents in the movie are a little questionable. They feel, you know, like like they, like they've been crafted just so you can kind of reach the next escalation point. I don't think it's like a you yeah, know, 100%, like, you know, realistic, necessarily, trajectory of what could happen. But I think the overall atmosphere of seeing a lot of the choices that individually make sense in their limited context, adding up to something that is completely pointless and destructive, is actually pretty effective and on point. Even if some of, like, the the individual movie pieces don't always play out, like, you know, like, blowing up the scientist in the nuke, not sure about that one, but but it gives you, you never lost for, you know, what is driving the major players, which in a movie with as many players as this one is actually pretty important. Like, even if I can't remember half their names, I know basically what they're doing in relation to each other, which is important from a storytelling perspective when you're telling, again, this sort of almost docudrama narrative that is just trying to, you know, like a documentary you would watch, it's like, oh, and then the president, talked to the Secretary of Defense. You said blah blah blah, and then he went down to chain of command. And you're like, oh, okay, I get how these place, how these people are related to each other, even if it's on purely on that sort of command level and not the not the human level. I did like in Future War how they showed the slowly increasing escalation,
1: like uh, their first like, okay, um, we're gonna use nukes, but we're just gonna use them underwater, to bomb. To bomb a submarine. So that's okay. We're not really using nukes. And then, then the Soviets are like, okay, um, our pilot defected. So we're going to ask, attack this West German base, but we're only going to use conventional weapons, not nukes. So that's okay. That's not really escalating. And they just keep making individual choices that are like, okay, we're not really starting a war, but that then
2: they're actually starting a
0: war, which is like, oh, Okay. And I mean you see you see these debates, you know, play out right till the present. I mean there's been a bunch of past like ten years or so, there's been a lot of there's scholars in the Russian defense field who are like, you know, maybe maybe we could get a tactical one off on. and they wouldn't they wouldn't retaliate. Like, there's been a lot of papers floating that's like, Oh, that doesn't that doesn't feel too good to me. Uh, I don't think you should do that and then there's the whole debate about from both both sides about hypersonic weapons and whether that would destabilize things. So Again, you know, these ghosts of the past are
2: are still with us. I can't help but feel like, on the one hand, you know, you take nukes off the table in a film, in a narrative sense, because they make things less fun. Nukes turn this from a war to a massacre. You have nukes flying around, but there's no real space for cool pilots or cool planes to change things. It's just bombs and death. However, there is one country in the world which has direct experiential, first-hand accounts of what it was like to be under a nuclear attack. And unsurprisingly, it is the work from that country which immediately escalates this to the terror of nuclear war. Because, you know, for them, that's what their parents lived through at this point.
0: Right, exactly. I mean, textually, the movie ends, I believe, or it's maybe the second-to-last shot is of the Hiroshima Dome. It's making a very, very deliberate and uh, unambiguous statement on, on that aspect of, of where things would go. And like you said, it does, it does balance out the, the techno-fetishist elements, cause, you know, you have that uh, kind of like middle chunk of the movie that is all conventional war, uh, which is still depicted as being fairly terrible. You know, they don't shy away from this brilliant angle. Um, uh, but once that first nuke goes off, it's just, the rest movie is just devastation everywhere.
2: Although, um like, the, the, the techno-fetishist element of it is so successfully achieved that there are, there, are, I just found a popular YouTube compilation, which is just the tanks and the missile firing and a bunch of comments talking about how well done it is. So it really threads the needle there. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, really it's, uh, there.
0: There, there's a whole bunch that, that YouTube jail we watched with the 80s besties, uh military footage. They have a video dedicated to to future war. And yeah, no, it looks just... I mean, they yeah. did their research. If you like this sort of thing, you know perverse as it might be, which is, of course, if you like me... You
2: oh, them. yeah, yeah. This is a Milo Taco's dream.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. It's, it's, they do a superb job. Everything is, like, picture-perfect. It looks right out of the exercises.
1: Yeah, yeah, you can, you can tell the uh, people who made the movie
0: are really into military hardware because it's too accurate otherwise. Yeah, it is... Firebox is interesting because, you know, you have the, the Pliny's character, he's like, part of the movie, but then, almost seen, almost every other human aspect of the movie is, is dedicated to the Jewish scientist characters, and I guess that might have just, must have been a personal interest of the, the author, or, you know, I think it was called Celebrity of sorts in, in the 70s and 80s, but it's like such a big, you know, normally, it it still gets discussed if you are like a scholar of the Soviet Union, Russia, state, you know, after, on um, Doctors' Trial, you know what Jewish life was like in the Soviet Union in the decades afterwards, but it's like very prominent on uh, this movie, and it's sort of that. In terms of sort of popular discourses about the Cold War, it's sort of faded into the background. It's really,
2: really prominent here, and it was also like it was a big thing at the time. Um, I haven't read about this in a while, but as I recall, there was a significant emigration of Jewish families from the Soviet Union around this time, in the seventies, eighties both to the United States and to Israel. And there had been particular pressure on the Soviet Union to let them emigrate. And obviously, simply from a a PR perspective, the idea that the Soviet Union was somewhere Jews wanted to leave makes the United States look good, frankly. You know, you're trying to manage the idea that they're the evil empire and we're not. Well, if the society there has such an anti-Semitism problem that Jews want to go, well, that doesn't sound like it's good, does it? So it's a very salient way to attack the idea of the Soviet Union's presentation of itself as a very sophisticated society.
0: Yeah, that was also a plot point in the Americans.
2: But
1: going back to the future war, the actual war part itself was pretty short, wasn't it? Wasn't it just like two weeks or something?
0: Yeah, it was quite brief, which is yeah. I mean, as we've said, as we've earlier, unlike some that would I think indulge in that longer. You know, the the of clash forces would be so great that once the once the balance from one side to the other started to shift, or it looked like it was going to shift, it would it would go into like very quickly. And then the movie gets gets that aspect right.
1: I was kind of surprised how late it was before they mentioned China, because it's like, you know, since China and basically an unofficial US ally at the time, I think US Plans for World War Three were actually depending on China to be entering, and uh, they did go to war
2: or had an undeclared border war with the Soviet Union like three times. Yeah, or yeah. Something. and and they also had a they also had a war with Vietnam, but China had a war with Vietnam after the United States pulled out. So, like they really ran the table there when it came to attacking their communist communist countries on their border. The only one I don't think they've ever gone to war with is North Korea. Right, yeah.
0: But, uh, there's, there's really interesting documents in the late 60s. Late 60s or early 70s when like, the Soviet ambassador is like, to the United States, sort of informally, he sort of floats the idea, it's like, well, how would you, the United States, respond if we invaded North China and wiped out their nuclear program? How would you feel about that? And, uh, you know, it, it didn't last very long since the border war kind of petered out, but there's this very interesting what-if moment where they, they do float that idea, they're like, this is a little out of control. So then they were going they were thinking the plans were at least in, in consideration to, to basically go into North China and then take out their nuclear program. So a lot of, a lot of interesting, weird what ifs in that, uh, in that area.
1: Didn't the U.S. leak those conversations to China? They're like, oh, settle down, look at where they're planning. They did, yeah. yeah like it was part of the,
0: uh, they were like, oh, uh, yeah, don't we, don't, we don't, we don't tell anyone. Oh bad, and they go to the Chinese ambassador and they' like, "Hey, you should trust these guys, yeah, so uh, if you go on the uh, what, National security archive, uh, there's a whole bunch of fascinating documents. Really, really, really. anyway, again, such so I told to it well, about
1: Firefox uh, specifically, like it is weird that this it's the Soviets making a stealth plane because. In real life, they never went for it, right? Like, they invented stealth technology. I like, think the U.S. actually stole a scientific article from the Soviet Union which outlined the basic premises, but the uh, the Soviets never actually went for it. It was the U.S. that was the big thing on stealth technology. But in the movie, it's the Soviets who are big into it, so I guess they were just
0: projecting. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of, let me talked about earlier. A lot of the movie is like, this anxiety that the United States is behind to get it. It's sort of like, nowadays, we're like, ho, 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 ho. But yeah, it seemed, it seemed like they were winning in the arms race again. Uh, did, did they mention missile gap? I feel like they did in Firefox. I, I don't think missiles come close at all in Firefox. I mean, it's, it's obviously huge in future war, but maybe in passing at the very start or something. But uh, the missile aspect Again, this is, like, what makes the techno-fetishist aspect funny. It's like, ev- everything is about this plane. <laughs> like this, I mean, it's like, yeah, I'm sure it's a great plane, but, like, it's not going to shift the balance of power when it's outside of some, like, unless the strategic context itself changes, right? But, and so in Firefox, again, it, it all comes down to this, like, battle of individuals and the battle of, like, this one special tool. And, like, everything else, like, little gap and all that stuff kind of, like, falls to the background.
2: It's a very kind of American blockbuster way of resolving a problem. If something would get in the way of your movie, you just don't have to ever mention that it's a thing, that it exists, or that it's a problem, because that's just distracting for the narrative. So if your film is that planes are really great, and this is a really game-changing plane, and any mention of missiles is just going to detract from that point, you're just not going to mention missiles. Missiles, they don't exist. People fire wooden pellets for all this film is concerned.
0: And, you know, of course, at the end, the movie ends with it flying into the sunset. We don't know what happens after. You want to, you know, diplomatic incident of the century, to <laughs> say the least. Uh, you know, maybe the Soviets would, would hush it up out of humiliation, but I'm guessing if they positively identified an American Air Force officer having infiltrated and killed a bunch of people, both in Moscow and in their research facility, and having stolen their plane, I think that might. Probably go to the UN. I think that might be a big deal, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. The movie ends. They got the plane. Good guys win. Yeah, that that is the whole
1: irrational aspect of the movie. It's a triumphal ending, despite
0: how many people
1: he <laughs> killed to get
0: there. Um, this is a complete tangent, but I liked how many minor villains from other movies are in this movie. Got some uh, Star Wars Imperial officers in here. You got the German officer from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So it's
2: stacked with minor villains from other movies. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about seeing the film from this time is there's always a lot of bunch of that guy. like, oh, yeah, I, I saw that guy in this one film I've seen a hundred times. But about the, um, the Jesse thing, I think this is why so many techno-thrillers basically are about edging, if you'll forgive the word choice. You know, stuff like Hunt for Red October, where you have all these cool toys, and things are about to get to the point where there's a big war but a war is averted. And it's not necessarily because the writers are anti-war, because, you know, they love the technology of war, but they're aware that war once unleashed is this big, nasty, vicious thing that takes over the pure thrill of pouring over the tech. So these things become about trying to stop it from getting to that point. And look at all these cool toys we have, which we could use if that happens. Which I think is a weird kind of dissonance In techno thrillers as a genre.
1: Well, the other thing about techno thrillers is like how much of it is science fiction. You mentioned Hunt for Red October, but the submarine from that, it has like some super advanced propulsion, quiet propulsion system or something that at the time was a science fiction or as far as the writers knew. And obviously there's Firefox and then Future War 1980X. It has that Star Wars strategic defence initiative thing which also did not exist. So it's kind of interesting that when they're talking about this, they don't talk about the actual machines that are existing, they're talking about the stuff that just a little bit beyond
2: that
0: makes it technically science fiction. Yeah, I mean it's obviously very narratively convenient. So I can suddenly do this. Uh yeah, it gives it gives it that touch of, of pulp in,
2: in, the, in between all the, the dryness. There's there's definitely a relationship to science fiction with the genre, but mostly it's, I mean, obviously controlled by thought. It's more moving to pure science fiction, but mostly it's trying to maintain as grounded in current real-world military capabilities and then tweak it just a little into a hypothetical thing that might happen or may even be in development. Like you mentioned, you read the Red Storm Rising. It describes the capabilities of a stealth bomber and apparently it does so quite accurately, but quite accurately on stuff that was not publicly known at the time of that book's release. That's a good example of the sort of space adjacent to science fiction that the techno thriller operates in. That it's, well, what's the next stage of the military industrial complex's ability is going to look like? It's very narrow focus. It's just that. And it's not stuff like, how is society going to change or something like that?
1: Yeah, pretty much. It's just the, the, the one specific new toy that's going to give this one specific advantage. But yeah, you're right. It's not about like regular science fiction. which is this one thing will change society. And this is what it
0: looks like in the future.
1: But okay. Are we, have we like talked these things out? Because I feel like we've <laughs> hit uh, a wall of topics.
2: We
0: probably have.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that, that's most of it, maybe. I'll
0: well, just say as a yeah. curiosity factoid, uh, for the, for both for cultural and political reasons, you know, so mm-hmm. you never really... Earth like an action movie industry that was not really a genre that behaved well in the ideological environment. But towards the end of the eighties they did actually make a series of them. There's it's pretty much all by this one director, Mikhail Tumanov. Tumanothili, it's a Georgian last name maybe, um but he made let's see, Hitback and The Detached Mission and a few others, and, uh, and they were sort of the belated response to movies like First Blood and Firefox. So they're interesting to watch in that context because they, they're very sort of different from the uh, somewhat cerebral tendencies of Soviet cinema in trying to adapt to this new world of sort of like muscular blockbusters. And there's, they're sort of awkward and it's interesting because, you know, most of them, towards the end, they start Unambiguously identifying like the enemy as you know the West or the United States, but for the most part, because you know know, the Soviet Union, the leadership of the Soviet Union tended to think about American cinema as like expressions almost of the state or as the government, and so they were always concerned that if they released sort of aggressive movies, that the United States would interpret those as as signals of aggression from the Soviet Union. So they were very sort of touchy about again. being too open about, like, identifying enemies, unless there was, like, historical, like, the Nazis or something in films, and so, like, in the first movie, Hit Back, it's about, like, a series of military exercises, and so it's all about, like, you know, yeah the skill and tenacity of the soldiers, but there's no enemy. In it. There's some criminals that meet at one point, but the, an external enemy is still something that they never quite became comfortable with until the very, very, very end, which is like a huge, of course, contrast to something like Firefox, or something like, you know, First Blood in particular, or Rainbow Three, where it's like, you know, the Soviet Union are, are the ultimate, like, bad guys, and so it is it is kind of fun to pick apart those, like, cultural differences and structural differences of
2: how they approach making, like, what we know as action cinema. I suppose one thing I would say in a very general sense about Soviet cinema, and Tom will know more about it, but I do know something, is that while the United States kind of progressed from the Nazis as the stock villains to the Russians as the stock villains, the Soviet Union never got over the Nazis. It was the defining conflict for the Soviet Union's popular imagination for very obvious reasons. It was a much bloodier war for the Soviets than it was for the Americans. And so well into the 70s and 80s, popular culture, which would have a kind of action component, like spy stuff, like Seventy Moments of Spring, that kind of thing, would be about World War Two, typically.
0: Right. Well, yeah, they made like, they made war and adventure cinema. Like even yeah, even yeah. going way back, there's like some movies about you know, like the border guards that are that identify yeah. as sort of an ambiguous like Western threat. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it was it was very much like you yeah
2: the the Nazis were, or like, like the uh, bad guys. Yeah. And they also had like in the 1920s, they had like a science fiction film. Well, like again, not like wild science fiction, but like kind of semi plausible where the enemy was like American businessmen, that kind of thing. And of course, you know, they also had like, you said adventure films. There's a great, great action film called White Sun of the Desert, which is set during the Russian Civil War. And the enemy is basically bandits of the, uh, of the Turkestan region, Basmaki, as they were called. We're fighting this Russian soldier. So, you know, on the one hand, that that's a kind of a concrete, almost ideological, because historically, many of the Basmaki were committed nationalists and Islamists. But in the film, Soviet film, they're basically bandits.
0: Right. And again, those are the, the historical, historical enemies, yeah. right? The sort of the, yeah.
2: the conversation
0: about that has ended, whereas temp- identifying uh, temporary enemies was ideologically film mm-hmm. yeah. both because they feared that it would be seen as a sign of aggression, but also you know, the Soviet Union, as far as rhetorically speaking, you know, cast itself as the peace nation, and also is supposed to have, sort of have an ideological affinity with the peoples of another country, and so it is sort of not seen as being ideologically correct necessarily to identify a foreign country as the enemy. And I think I think interestingly I'm not sure, but I, I think the those those later action movies that I talked about that do identify the Americans as the bad guys. Those might be post-class class, which is kind of funny, Uh that it, it took that the, uh, you know, the wheels of, like, censorship had to come off for these more, like, uh aggressive actions that used to come out. It's sort of the reverse of what you'd expect, I think, um, when you think about, you know, propaganda or something.
2: So, interesting comparative that uh, you can go and check out, most of them are on YouTube, actually. Yeah, well, White Stone of the Desert, for example, is definitely on YouTube, and it's on YouTube in subtitles, in HD, and released by Moss Film, which have released legally many of their own films on YouTube. It's a really great resource of classic Soviet cinema. I'm pretty so pretty sure hitback is on Moss. Film yeah. yeah. It's great stuff.
1: All right. But we are traveling pretty far afield and just into <laughs> the Soviet cinema now. But yeah, so have we like reached the, the end of what we wanted to say about Future
0: of War, 1980X and Firefox? believe we have i guess we can always do the what do you recommend them
1: yeah okay well as far as as i go i would actually um hesitate i wouldn't it uh, depends on the person i'm talking to because um for both the well actually for future war 1980x uh, let's start off there if you really like military stuff then you're probably gonna like it if uh you're not into that if you don't really care about the tanks and so on. It's uh, it's pretty f- uh, slim pickings on the character and plot point. Well, also if you're into geopolitics, that's also a thing that uh, you can watch. Feature war and x explore. But outside of the outside of those two subjects, yeah, it, it's not enough to for you if you're not into those. Uh, Firefox is um, I wouldn't call it the classic per se. Um, I mean, it's it 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 is an interesting glimpse into what America was obsessing over regarding the Soviet Union at the time it was made in 1982. So as a historical document, yes, it is a good thing to watch. But as an actual movie, well, you know what? I watched Firefox on like a Sunday afternoon and it reminded me of when they used to have cable and just turn on the TV and was like, oh, hey, an old movie. I'll just watch it. That's like the exact context that I would I think FireFox is good for. But if you, I'd say um, you can pretty much live your life without ever watching <laughs> it and not feel like you miss anything.
0: Yeah, I agree basically to the letter with FireFox. Like you know, it's capably crafted, it's well mounted. There's some neat, you know, I like all the full scale mockups of that they have. That stuff is all cool, but. You know, it's a little overlong, character-wise, not super compelling. And as an aviation movie, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's not a top gun. It's not, you know, a Blue Max or something. Like, the, the aviation stuff is neat, but it's it's just okay, particularly, like, the, the aerial combat. There's there's some aspects of how it's shot that I like, but uh, it's not framed exceptionally, and, and that's something that, actually, not, 1980X, because it has animation, and it has the freedom of being able to frame things exactly how it wants. It is actually does a much better job, I think, Of uh, as far as if you're, like, a Milporn person. Like, it has that sort of, guilty for realism, but also, you know, there's just a certain richness to it, and so, like just said, you know, Firefox, uh, I don't think I would, like, recommend people seek it out actively, necessarily, but if it's on TV, and you like that kind of thing, like, yeah, yeah, pop it on. But it's like a capable, but you know, again, movie, I guess is how I would describe it. And then Future War, I think, particularly, you know, get there, there's a lot of versions out there that are free to watch, but the video quality I think is pretty awful. But if you could get a nice looking copy, I do think it is quite worth watching because um there is actually a lot a lot of artistry there. It is very Yes, Drive, it's very, basically go into the mindset that you're about to watch a docudrama, but if you go into it with that context, I think there's a lot to enjoy there. And it is sort of weirdly ambitious for this little picture that is, you know, known in some circles, but not particularly widely. So I would actually, if you have any interest in this sort of stuff, I would more strongly recommend you for 1980X and is That
2: Sunday on the Couch. Yeah, I guess my thing is, as I said earlier, there is a compilation on YouTube showing all the different tanks and missiles and planes and planes that come out of other planes in future war. And if that's the kind of thing that by itself sounds like something you'd like to spend about seven minutes on, just looking at how all the little things move, then the film itself, I think, would also be something I recommend. It is a film for that audience. I don't think it's you know a bad film, but it's really a film that knows this audience. And if you're that audience, this is that movie. And I am, personally. I, I do like looking little at little machines move around. I love getting those 80s anime compilations just of people flipping switches and nozzles and things or like uh, Bubblegum Crisis and all the little details in the car and then the original Bubblegum Crisis OVA is that kind of thing. And if you like that stuff, it's here. And, you know, it's not the best that it's ever been, but in terms of like animation, but they do really put the effort in in terms of accuracy. And as for Firefox, yeah, it's... The kind of thing I would see half of on BBC, like, uh in 1994 or something. I mean, I didn't at the time, but it's the kind of thing I would have. Like, I, I kind of saw the movie Zulu that way for, like, 10 years and pieced it together for context. But, you know, it's got Clint Eastwood, who people like, and it has a plane, and people like planes. And Top Gun is really popular right now. And if you watched Top Gun Maverick and you watched Top Gun, you're like... I really want to see another 80s movie where they make love to a plane. Well, you know, I've got good news for you. They exist. This one is one of them. So if you're that Pacific audience member, this, and if you're not outside that audience, you look, look at all these, you don't like the idea of looking at a technical manual or anything. That does not sound like a good time for you, like pass on by. This is, this is not your scene for you to watch, I think. And speaking of liking things,
1: if you like what you heard in this episode, and if you want to hear more, well, our podcast is on iTunes, it's on Stitcher, it is pretty much on everywhere you could listen to podcasts for. We also have a blog, podcastonthesky.wordpress.com, where all our episodes are as well, and uh, we even have some
0: anime music videos, uh, a handful of them. I, I think like 60% of our anime music videos are about the Soviet Union or uh, Warsaw Pact. so yeah, if you're into those, uh, yeah, uh, watch those too. And uh, we also have some kind of anime dictionary. If you ever come across any term that you're not sure what's it about, then you can come to our website, to our WordPress blog, and it's there.
2: Long-term listeners may recall that some time ago, some years ago, we promised that we were going to do an episode on a certain subject, and we never released it because, unfortunately, the file was lost. However, for our next episode, we are finally recording that particular combination. We're going directly from techno-thrillers of the Cold War to beautiful dresses, high society, and the lavish life of pre-revolutionary France, where I'm sure everything will be just fine because it's before the revolution. And I'm sure the revolution is not going to disrupt this at all. Anyway, the two things in question are the Sofia Coppola film Marie Antoinette and the Osamu Dosaki-directed 1970s anime series Rose of Versailles. Please look forward to that. Right, and also
0: we're on Twitter, sorry I forgot, at Flying Podcast. Anyway, see you all yeah. next time. Absolutely. See you, see See everybody.